It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Robert Polly. And today, saving animals cell by cell. We're going to hear about something called the frozen zoo. It's part of the San Diego Zoo, but much colder than the areas you're likely to visit. Almost 400 degrees below zero, in fact. And instead of whole animals, the frozen zoo contains tissue samples taken from hundreds of different kinds of fish, birds, amphibians, reptiles, and mammals. Those animal cells are kept in suspended animation, and when thawed out, they can begin multiplying again. They can even be used to clone new animals in some cases, though that's not the main intent of the frozen zoo. It is, in effect, a giant biological database, an information resource helping scientists better understand the health, the evolution, and the conservation of the world's animal species. And one of the latest and largest research efforts to make use of the specimens in the frozen zoo is the Genome 10K Project. It's a new initiative to decode the genomes of 10,000 animal species. The Genome 10K Project has just announced the first 101 species it'll be working on. And no, they aren't Dalmatians. The dog genome has already been sequenced. And we're going to learn a little more about the project in the second half of the hour from biomolecular scientist David Hausler of UC Santa Cruz. He's one of the co-founders of the Genome 10K Project. But first we're going to hear about the frozen zoo from one of its chief scientists, Oliver Ryder. Are you in the frozen zoo right now? No, I'm in my office. <laughs> Can you describe what the frozen zoo looks like for people who might be imagining, um, you know, a large walk-in freezer with, with whole animals standing around um, frozen? Well, you know, it's actually cold in there. <laughs> um, because it's a large room in which there are stainless steel tanks that are basically large thermoses. They look like round camp freezers made out of stainless steel, and they hold um, liquid nitrogen in the bottom, which keeps the atmosphere above them very cool. And inside there are vials of uh, approximately two tablespoons of liquid, only it's not liquid, it's frozen cell culture medium in which are millions of cells um, in each one of these vials. And we have about, I think, 100,000 of these vials um, in these freezers. And in those 100,000 vials are the cells of over 8,500 individual animals that comprise over 800 species of birds, mammals, reptiles, um, and some amphibians. Not what we normally think of as a zoo. No. <laughs> Your background is, is in what field? I'm a geneticist. Um, how did you come to the San Diego Zoo in the first place? It's been quite a while ago now, but I was uh, receiving a training in molecular genetics and molecular biology, and I thought, what's the thing that I would most like to spend my life doing? I love doing science. How would I like to see my science applied in the world? And about that time, there was a growing awareness of endangered species, uh, the decline of whale populations, um, the decline of California condors, concern about wild salmon. 
declines in species like the Florida panther. And it was about the time that the giant pandas were uh, given as a gift by the Chinese people to the American people. And uh, Ling Ling and Xing Xing were put in the national zoo and became uh, objects of great attention. And I thought that there's so much to learn about these animals. Um, there ought to be a, an effort to apply, uh, you know, scientific um, study to to help understand them better and uh, contribute to to conservation efforts. But at that point, it wasn't clear what a geneticist could do. So um, in the meantime, of course, it's uh, there are lots of things uh, that that can be done and uh, ways are being found to do them. So it's a very exciting uh, job. At the time, you say you didn't know what a geneticist could do. This was this was when exactly? About 1976. This is a very long time ago in in uh, the world of biochemistry and genetics. People weren't even sequencing whole genomes back then, so I can imagine that uh, the options for a geneticist were pretty limited. Uh, well, when it... one could study blood groups, like the you know humans have ABO, and so do gorillas and chimpanzees, and work was being done on on racehorses to confirm um, parentage so that the uh, pedigree records could be accurately kept and uh, the value of a horse which is related to its parentage could be um, uh, verified. And these same tests would work on some endangered species of horses uh, like, uh, uh, well, we experimented, but on uh, zebras and on Chevalsky's horses. So there were ways to begin to collect information about genetic variation, but you're right. Now we have the tools of genome sequencing and um, uh, high-throughput uh, DNA profiling that provide millions-fold more information. Um, in 1976 uh, is when you say you started out, and that is exactly when the frozen zoo started, isn't it? Well, about a year before. I, I arrived there after the frozen zoo had um, about 100 samples in it. What, what was the original intention of the frozen zoo, again, long before people were sequencing genomes? Well, one of the questions that uh, was pertinent in zoos then, and, and really still is, is uh, defining species and defining the reproductive units that uh, we use you know, for identifying breeding, so that if you have an animal you say, well, this looks like it is uh, a deer of this species, but is it really? Um, do we know enough about species in the wild? We're still discovering species, and, um, and one of the ways of identifying species that look similar morphologically, but they actually have a distinct evolutionary history and, and shouldn't be interbred, is by doing chromosomal analysis. So we were studying chromosomes, and we wouldn't be able to routinely go out and ask a deer or a gorilla to give us a blood sample. But when the veterinarians handled it, if we could get a small piece of skin, a tiny biopsy, we could grow the cells up and freeze them. And then uh, later we could take them out and study them. Or when a new technique became available, we could then go back and uh, uh, re-examine that animal with the new technology. So back in, in 1976, about 34 years ago, this initiative started to, to collect blood and tissue samples from as many animals as possible. And living cells. Remember that these are viable cell cultures. So, you know, last week we thought the samples of a, a gorilla 
um, you know, to facilitate the development of genetic testing for gorillas, but those samples have been um, frozen for 27 years. Suspended animation? Yes, just because it's ultra-cold temperatures. It's uh, 370 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Now, you can't do this with whole organisms, I mean, not, not complex organisms. You can't freeze them and bring them back to life years later, as far as I know. Am I wrong about that? Uh, not really. I mean, you can with a single cell organism. The problem is, is that uh, the freezing is a crucial step. If the freezing isn't done properly, the cells can die. The freezing can be done properly if you have cells in suspension. But if you have a whole animal, you know, by definition, you don't have cells in suspension, and so it hasn't proven possible to to freeze, uh, you know, successfully, uh, you know, organs or large tissues or whole animals. But but you can do it with individual cells. So. As you say, this uh, frozen zoo contains living cells from various kinds of creatures that can be revived at any time. That's right. And they can last into perpetuity? We've seen no detrimental effect, basically, for uh, cells that are stored for over a quarter of a century. We're pretty confident that the cells should be okay for at least 10,000 years. Wow. If we keep them cold. Right. Now, now I want to distinguish between this and what some people, I'm sure, have heard about uh, living cell cultures, where the cells aren't frozen, where the cells are just continually dividing and kept alive for generations, uh, like some of the cell cultures used in cancer research and so on. But this is different. This is taking a a cell, freezing it in its original state and, and reviving the same cell years later, decades later, maybe hundreds of years later, potentially. That's right, and, and they'll divide again so we can make more of them. Now, um, the natural question then is, um, well, what about uh, doing something with these cells beyond simply examining them, maybe cloning them, maybe rebuilding organisms, uh, reconstituting organisms? Is that science fiction or is that something that's, that's possible? Well, we, you know, with, uh, we know that it's possible to um, undertake cloning with the kinds of cells that uh, uh, are frozen in the frozen zoo. And in fact, two endangered species have been cloned um, with cells from the frozen zoo. They're both relatives of cattle, uh, Asian cattle. One's called the gaur and the other's called the bantang. And, you know, now there's the possibility of using these uh, fibroblasts, which we consider basically adult cells. They're not from a, an earlier stage in the life of an organism, um, and uh, inducing those to become stem cells, which, you know, can be useful for treating diseases or also potentially for reproductive purposes. The, the two uh, cattle species that you have managed to clone, you're saying you... You took cells from the frozen zoo, you managed to clone them uh, and, uh, and, and create, well, a new organism? Yes. <laughs> this was done a, a few years ago, and, you know, it was not all done here in San Diego, but there were um, um, live births of animals. Um, they um, survived varying ages. There are none of these clones that are alive right now, but one of them lived for about eight years. That's pretty darn good. I mean, we know, I think people probably know from Dolly the Sheep and other examples that uh, clones aren't always all that uh, healthy, and they don't always live that long, but uh, you got one to live eight years. So we're likely to see more of that in the future, I would imagine. Well, you know, that's a very important point to to consider. We would like to find ways to have it be more efficient, as you said, uh, but, you know, that's going to require investing effort to learn more about uh, how to do that. 
but we're seeing species that are on the brink of extinction, and I, it's not uh, not a fanciful statement to say that there's some species that this technology could literally be the difference between extinction and survival. And I think we really need to look seriously at the possibility of, of using those technologies um, in order to prevent extinctions. And how about animals that already are extinct but uh, that you have samples of? You know, my opinion is if an animal has been extinct for 10,000 years, it probably doesn't have any functional role to play in an ecosystem anymore. <laughs> it's probably been replaced in an ecosystem sense by other species that have, and, um, you know, while that's a, uh, a fanciful notion that attracts the human imagination, I don't think it achieves an important conservation purpose. It's difficult to marshal efforts and resources for these kinds of conservation projects, and I'd rather see that those resources uh, be marshaled towards preventing extinctions and keeping alive species that are on the planet um, now rather than uh, exploring um, the possibility of bringing back uh, species that have long been extinct. What, what about more recently extinct species, say, um, you know, a, a rare mammal that goes extinct in our lifetime? Uh, that kind of thing is happening or is about to happen in many cases. Would that be a legitimate project to bring that species back? I think we need to look at that, but if we uh, just stop thinking about where we are now and move ourselves forward in this interview, say, a hundred years, we're going to look back and say, well, you know, back then they didn't know as much about biology as we know now. And um, so our job, now we're going to move back to the present. Our job here in the present is to think, how could we, how can we sort of imagine what kinds of things that they would wish that we knew about? And one of the things I think is important is that we don't necessarily understand all of the social context of these animals. So in the sense that if we could intervene now to make a population sustainable so that the individuals have the opportunity to live in the habitats, in social groups, or in, in the uh, behavioral environment that's natural for them, they're more likely to be successful and um, survive. And so in that sense, it would be better to start doing these projects now rather than, say, a century where if you suddenly produce an animal that's been extinct, it doesn't have any other of its own species to meet. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, I suppose in the long view, maybe the most essential task is, is the one that you're already tackling, which is to preserve the information above all else. You're correct. One of the things that we can do now is, you know, recognize that resources in available or technologies available in the future may be more powerful than what we have now. But it's also very difficult to argue that we don't have a better opportunity to collect and bank materials now than, than will be possible in the future because we continue to see a decline in, in species numbers and distribution and, and, and diminution of of genetic pools. Uh, you spoke of another useful application of the uh, material in the frozen zoo. Even before there was genetic sequencing, even before cloning technology existed, and that was simply determining whether two individual animals were of the same species. And, and you said that one of the zoo's problems was figuring out which ones to breed. It, I, you know, I never even uh, imagined that was a problem. You have 
a male and a female, and you don't even know whether they're the same species and, and whether breeding them is a good idea unless right. you, you check them out on a genetic level. That's right, and it's because there are cryptic species. You know, they look similar to us, but, you know, they actually um, are not representing the same genetic stock. If you reproduce them, you can have um, offspring that are sterile, and that's a waste of reproductive effort. So, you know, it's thought now that there are about 6,000 species of mammals, but experts think they're probably within those species that are called, that are named right now, the, say approximately 6,000. There may be another 3,000 species that just haven't been recognized because what's actually several species, you know, more than one species, is called a single species. Mm -hmm. And I want to clarify, uh, just because radio can sometimes lead to mistaken impressions, uh, you said you may have two individuals that look similar to us, and you don't mean that they look like us humans. You mean to us humans, they look similar to each other. <laughs> Thank you for making that distinction. In fact, I suspect the species we're talking about often are species of animals that aren't anywhere close to us. I mean, what kinds of animals are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about small deer or, or very small mammals. Like uh, like shrews or or voles or uh, mice or gerboas. Um, I, I want to get to the uh, Genome 10K project in, in just a moment because you're a co-founder of that project, and and there's been a recent announcement I want to talk about. But a couple more questions about the non-Genome uh, 10K uh, applications of the frozen zoo. You guys are doing all kinds of other research. Can you give me some examples of? particularly important work you've done on, the, on these, uh, these tissue samples? Well, as you mentioned, one of the things we do is help define species units and, you know, and therefore conservation units. Um, another thing we do is assist in the management program for species so that as we, as, as, as in intensively managed populations, as we try to mimic natural social groups, we may have multiple males and females in a group, and when a baby is born, it may be a question, well, who was the father? So we undertake uh, paternity analysis on a wide variety of species, uh, and which assists in, in um, meeting the goals to preserve the genetic diversity and avoid inbreeding in populations, um, but at the same time uh, helps facilitate keeping more natural social groups of animals together. Um. Some of the kinds of testing you're talking about, paternity testing, obviously very familiar with this from the, uh, not personally, but uh, <laughs> a lot of us are very familiar with this from the human world. Um, do technologies like that tend to go from, from human applications to, to the animal world? I mean, are you picking up on stuff that's developed first for humans, or does it go the other way? Well, it goes both ways, but overwhelmingly it goes from humans or other, uh, you know, well-studied organisms. We study ourselves because we're interested in our own health and our own biology. We study uh, domestic animals because we're interested in, in their husbandry and production and management. So these are, are, are organisms in which uh, society has invested, you know, a large amount of resources in, in studying. So they serve as a... Uh, um, uh, there, there's valuable information we can gather from those studies that can be applied to um, uh, other species. But it also works um, uh, in the other direction as we study uh, details of the uh, metabolism of great apes. 
uh, we can learn something about the variation that occurs in humans. You know, the the great apes to whom we're most closely related, the chimpanzees and the gorillas, they also vary from us in diet. So um, uh, studying a gorilla that's vegetarian, um, studying its cholesterol metabolism or uh, risks of heart failure or looking at heart diseases actually is potentially useful for um, improving human health and medicine. How do you get these samples in the first place of these, these tissues from various animals? Uh, first of all, are they, are they mainly taken from animals that you have there in the San Diego Zoo or are they coming from elsewhere? The samples in the frozen zoo, uh, you know, represent well the animal collections of the San Diego Zoo and San Diego Safari Park, but other institutions and organizations also send samples to us. So there are samples in the frozen zoo from around the world, from um, different uh, institutions, uh, over 180 at last count, um, contributed samples to the frozen zoo. In order to establish a cell culture, we, t we take a very small biopsy of tissue. This can be skin or some other tissue. We get access to this if an animal is being given a veterinary exam, either when it's coming in for quarantine exam um, or if it's receiving a health check. Um, or it can be taken from an animal um, after it's dead. Uh, even for uh, several days, it's possible to obtain a sample from which living cells can be grown and frozen. And then when a research project comes along, uh, a particular question needs to be answered. Then you thaw out just a, a little bit of, of a particular sample and give it to the researchers. Is that how it works? When we freeze the cells, we don't freeze one vial. We freeze a dozen and each one of these can be thawed or grown and expanded into more vials, some of which we use for research and others which we can freeze back again. So it's, in one, so it's a renewable resource. I see, because these are viable cell cultures. You can get new cells, and uh, a withdrawal from this tissue bank does not, uh, <laughs> does not drive the account down to zero at any point. That's one of our principles, is we don't even get down close to zero. We won't uh, utilize the material down to less than about three vials, because we know there'll be things to do in the future that uh, are very important. Well, speaking of important things, uh, the uh, Genome 10K project. Um, I, I, I guess you are a co-founder of that project, which uh, really got off the ground uh, within the last year or so. With David Hausler and Steve O'Brien, yes, I helped uh, launch the Genome 10K. And uh, just to remind listeners of what the Genome 10K project is, it's this very ambitious effort to sequence the genomes of 10,000 vertebrate species, that is, uh, fish, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, and birds, and, and create by far the largest repository of genetic information on, on the animal world that has ever been assembled. And uh, a new announcement has just been made that, that the very first uh, 101 of those 10,000 species have been uh, chosen uh, for sequencing. W were you part of that uh, decision as to which 101 species get, get picked first? Well, the whole Genome 10K community of scientists was involved, but yes, and, and part of the reason that I had a particular involvement was because of the collections in the frozen zoo. We're busy now purifying DNA from uh, uh, Komodo dragons and uh, Australian koalas and uh, 
um, other species to uh, have so that their genomes can be sequenced. I actually looked over the list of the 101 species uh, that the project's going to start with, and they include a, a lot of very well-known species, everything from great white sharks to, um, as you say, the Komodo dragon, the bald eagle, emperor penguin, ostrich, cheetah, lion, uh, sheep. I would have thought sheep had been sequenced by now, but not so. Well, there've been there's been some sheep sequencing, but I think that the uh, our colleagues in China want to sequence um, um, some uh, uh, different breeds of sheep and complete the genome sequencing. The the sheep has been genetically similar enough to the cow that uh, not a separate effort for sheep has been uh, uh, developed. So I'm glad to see. Um, that this is taking place because there are many endangered species of sheep for which this information is potentially useful. Mm. And, and the list also includes the sperm whale, the common vampire bat, the North American beaver, um, and some uh, maybe rarer species, the Mexican burrowing toad, the Chinese fire-bellied newt. I imagine some of those are from your, your collection, huh? Well, of the uh, list in the first 101, I think that uh, it's possible that we're going to provide around a dozen of those. Oh, okay, okay. Um, once these genomes are sequenced, which is a big task in itself, but the technology for sequencing genes has uh, come a long way. It's a lot faster and a lot cheaper than it used to be. But once these genomes are fully sequenced, once you have, let's say, the uh, the code book of a particular species, like uh, the Komodo dragon or the bald eagle. For you as a geneticist, what's the most exciting part of that? Well, we're going to learn more about the changes in genes that cause the p particular, you know, body plan changes or behavioral changes. We're going to get insights into that. So it's really going to provide a new um, a channel or a new view or a new possibility of, of inquiry into biological phenomenon. And then having a reference genome sequence, you know, sets the stage for studying the genetic variation that uh, the, uh, is distributed across the range and among populations of uh, species. And for conservation efforts, saving sustainable populations and preserving the heritage of genetic diversity of a species is a, is a very important aspect that these kinds of data will help contribute to. Well, well Dr. Ryder, uh, thank you so much for taking this time. And, and when do you expect the, the first genomes to be sequenced? Well, I think that, you know, uh, the genome sequencing goes so fast that uh, we anticipate there will probably be, you know, on the order of at least a dozen by the time the Genome 10K community of scientists meets um, in Santa Cruz in March. Well, thanks very much for your time. You bet. Oliver Ryder is Director of Genetics at the San Diego Zoo's Institute for Conservation Research. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and we'll return in one moment. What if all the animals were frozen? Now back to today's show. In the previous interview, we heard a little bit about the Genome 10K project from one of its co-founders, Oliver Ryder. 
The Genome 10K Project is a new initiative to map the genomes of 10,000 animal species, which is a huge leap over the couple of dozen species whose genomes have so far been sequenced. Next, we're going to hear from another of the project's co-founders, David Hausler. He's director of the Center for Biomolecular Science and Engineering at UC Santa Cruz. And I spoke to him last year when the Genome 10K Project was just getting underway. He explained why scientists are so eager to get their hands on all that genetic information. You know, we, we have interest from many different scientists who have many different perspectives on this, and there are many, many reasons. But I think the one thing that unifies us all is pure scientific curiosity. How all of these animals evolved from a common ancestor that lived 500 to 600 million years ago. We know this. And you're talking about the common ancestor of all vertebrates. Of all vertebrates. Mm -hmm. It was a... pre-fish thing. It was an ocean-going animal. Mm -hmm. Um, It it had uh, a segmented body with muscles. It had a primitive brain-like structure. It, you know, was capable of locomotion. Sight. Uh, Looked like a worm or a fish. It was know? more like a very simple fish. You know, if you think about it, as a simple, simple-minded fish. So we have an opportunity to understand how the spectacular innovations occurred at the genetic level. So there was a genome of this creature, and it was already billion bases, but then during the eons of time that happened, the next half a billion years, we see a remarkable divergence of one of the most successful branches of life on this planet. The vertebrates are remarkably malleable and remarkably successful. So the descendants of this animal conquered land and air yeah, we have this this incredible explosion of uh, life forms out of this single ancestor from half a billion years ago, a little more than half a billion years right. ago. So if you guys collect the, the uh, DNA of all these species um, who call that uh, ancestral creature grandpa, uh, yes. <laughs> what can you tell from that DNA? Well, we with this many species... Uh, we will be able to see the individual changes. And so what happens is when we compare the human genome to the mouse genome, there's just so so many differences uh, that we cannot put together a history of which changes came first on which lineage and so forth. But um, as we fill in the genomes densely for closely related species, we're able to say, aha, okay, for these two closely related species, there are only a few changes, and so we know that these changes happen somewhere within these two species. Now look at a third mm. species that's also close, and we see that, aha, the two, the first two species have an A here. The outgroup, the third species, has a C, and if we look further on, all the other species have a C, then we can say, aha, so it's just these two species that are very closely related that have an A. Everybody else has a C, so that C changed to an A, and, and it's about this time and in this specific lineage. And so we can pin down actual DNA change events, actual mutations occurred in one animal to begin with 
and then were passed on to their offspring and their offspring's offspring, and even through species that derived from that, all the way to today. But we can go back and date it and approximately say at some time there was one animal here that incurred this mutation, and now that explains why we see these differences today. You can't actually just look at a couple of genomes and say, oh, this occurred um, 20 million years ago. But you have lots of other information from fossils. Right. Just by looking at the genomes, we get uh, an order of events right. on the branches. Right. Uh, but then dating the points at which the branches happened, we use fossils. Mm-hmm. And so that's uh, why we have a number of scientists uh, that are uh, paleontologists and other people interested in ancient climates and so forth, so we can then piece together what was going on at the time these DNA changes were happening. And then this leads to the very exciting question about what were the actual evolutionary forces. So this is Darwin in action. This is Darwin come alive. I was just thinking, if only he were alive to to see this. Yeah, He would be thrilled to see this. <laughs> it, it, it would be beyond his imagination at that point to actually think of having millions and millions of specific changes in this script. Of course, Darwin didn't, didn't know about DNA and that there was a simple digital script underlying uh, the information that is passed down. He didn't even know the, about genes, you know. No, absolutely. At all. Uh, not, in, not in any concrete sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the gene, you know, the, the, this notion of something that is passed on that causes children to be similar to uh, their parents is, was a very abstract notion at that time. It wasn't clear what stuff was responsible for it. Mm-hmm. But now we know that stuff. We know that it's DNA, and we can watch it changing in action. And we can address to what extent were these driven by the evolutionary forces. If we think about the ancient climate, if we think about the situation, and if we think about the adaptations that we observe, the physiological adaptations and behavioral adaptations, uh, and even very deep molecular adaptations. Their vertebrates have specific types of cells called neural crest cells that, that uh, contribute to the melanin in your skin, to parts of your brain, to your bones, to your heart. Uh, and there's no invertebrate species that has cells like this. The these, are, these are cells that, that uh, are present in embryonic development that give rise to these various yes, things you're talking very about. Early, they yeah. show up very early yeah. in embryonic development, only in vertebrates. So we have genes that are unique to vertebrates. We have cells that are unique to vertebrates. We have appendages uh, like wings and so forth that have their specific vertebrate forms. And uh, we have behaviors uh, and uh, very high uh, level biological levels of organization uh, that are innovations that are specific to the vertebrate. So all of these things happened in some orderly progression as the vertebrates evolved from their common ancestor. This is the great story of life unfolding. It's like Rudyard Kip- Kipling, uh, you know, how did the elephant get its trunk? Except that it's not a just-so story. <laughs> exactly. But, but, uh, but we want to answer this in a scientific approach. Um, 
And no one really knows these. I mean, if you think about the actual questions that Kipling addressed, mm, mm, <laughs> we don't understand, mm, uh, fully understand the genetics. Mm. We, you know, there's some very interesting work on how the leopard got its spots. Is there really? Um, but many of the details are still unclear at this point. So biggest reason for this 10K genome project of all is to start to really fill in the tree of life Absolutely. You know, in far more detail than we have so far. Um, You've been, as we said earlier, you, your lab and many others have been sequencing the genomes of a handful of species um, over the last 10 years or so and comparing those genomes to find all kinds of interesting things out. And we'll talk about a few of those. But first, this just the act of comparison itself. Turns out that's really hard to do, isn't it? Very difficult, yes. I've devoted years and years now to this, about a decade, and uh, I still wake up in the morning thinking, why don't I really understand this problem yet? <laughs> I've been thinking about it for 10 years. Okay, so... It's a hard question. So we know that the genome is is long, you know, in the case of humans, 3 billion letters. But if we put that side by side with the genome of a chimp, which is also 3 billion letters, right? Yes. Why can't roughly. you just say, oh, here's where the differences are? It does seem like the, <laughs> that, that would be the obvious approach. <laughs> yep. So what makes this complicated is that during evolution, the chromosomes are rearranged. Pieces of chromosomes are cut out and moved to different places. Pieces of chromosomes are actually duplicated multiple times, and those copies are moved to different places. Pieces are lost, and very rarely uh, you have integration of DNA that didn't come from your parent. Um, this can come from viruses like uh, RNA viruses, like the uh, uh, AIDS virus, for example, can integrate and can make complementary DNA that integrates into the genome. Uh, completely novel DNA of this type tends to be a small part of the genome, but actually, after these viruses integrate, so-called retroviruses like like the uh, AIDS virus and others, uh, then some of that material keeps copying itself and passing itself on to new generations. And occasionally in a germ cell, uh, which means uh, an egg or a sperm, you will have this little piece of virally derived DNA make extra copies of itself, and then the child has more DNA than the parent had. And it turns out that more than half of the DNA in your genome is derived from this process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So more than half of the DNA, and we think more like 80% uh, percent or more, actually is not related to DNA that was in this ancestor that lived 500 million years ago. Um, but is DNA that was introduced by viruses and then duplicated and passed down from generation to generation. It, it bloated out uh, lots of segments of your genome. There are graveyards of these dead fragments of viruses that you see littering the genome. Sometimes you're, you, we, we're trying to read the genes off, and in between them mm. is all of the stuff. It's been called junk DNA oftentimes in the past, because it seems like just debris mm. left over from this process. But 
our lab, uh, interestingly enough, among many other labs. Can, can I jump in, David? And so say, go ahead. And you want to you want to lead into this? Uh, uh, well, as a matter of fact, I just want to make sure we've we've sort of answered um, the naive question, deliberately naive question I asked a moment ago, which yes. is, I think uh, we got off on it, <laughs> which is the simplified picture of uh, a DNA sequence uh, as being somehow this long string that's three billion letters long, and all you have to do is line up two strings from different species right, and read yes. off the differences. Right. In fact, what you're saying is first. Of all, we way I way oversimplified by presenting it as one string. It's on twenty three chromosomes. Yes. In the case of human beings, it's in different pieces. But you're saying it has lots of other stuff in there, and so even lining up what might be uh, related genes, what might be mm-hmm. sequences that are uh, directly analogous between two species, that's hard, really hard. And I'm sure you have some great computers in your lab. But I've heard that this process of just comparing two genomes and finding those related areas to compare it consumes the power of your computers um, for long stretches of time. That is true. We have well over a thousand processing units in our cluster, uh, and this compute cluster is is already being stressed to the maximum. Uh, comparing the forty-four genomes to each other took weeks and tied us up you know, preventing us from being able to do some other tasks. And uh, we have these meetings where we shake our heads and say, boy, what's it going to be like when there's 100? Or, and then or 10, when 000. I mention the 10,000, I get very, uh, a very kind of uh, dirty looks from the staff. People turn green. Uh, we start to wonder how we're going to deal with that. Oh, but I can see smiles across the faces of executives at Intel. <laughs> yes, I think this is an area for for large scale computing. It will be an exciting challenge uh, with the, this project and the Thousand Human Genomes Project and all of the other projects that are launching, uh, analyzing DNA uh, data using new uh, large compute farms or cloud computing or some of these other grid new computing paradigms. Yeah. Uh, these are future ways that we are going to make it feasible to do the massive amount of computation. But at Santa Cruz, we also work on coming up with cleverer algorithms to do this faster and faster. And, you know, efficiency is obtainable when you really understand the problem. But it turns out that when you have pieces of DNA that are rearranging themselves and duplicating and being lost and replaced by other pieces of DNA... It becomes a puzzle that's very hard to put back together mm. again. And, and this um, activity you're describing, uh, bits of DNA within a particular species genome. That's yeah? right. Jumping around, duplicating themselves, and creating this huge mass of stuff that has been called junk DNA. It's actually greater than 98% of our genome is this stuff, right? Well, uh, only 1.5% of our genome is protein coding genes. What so, we normally think of as genes. Right. Yeah. We normally think of genes as, as little snippets of DNA that mm. are transcribed into RNA and then translated into protein. This is sometimes called the central dogma of molecular biology. Um, but it turns out that that is only the minority. Uh, that That's the, the function of only the min- minority of bases in the human genome. At least 80% of it is is these virally derived. And then there are the in-between parts that 
we don't know. We can't prove that it, it was derived from one of these uh, ancient uh, processes. These are technically called transposons, the mm -hmm. little pieces that were originally derived from viruses for the most part mm -hmm. that jump around. So there are, there's transposon-derived DNA, there are genes, and then there are you know, 10 or 15% of the DNA in there that we can't really know. Uh, we don't really know what its origin uh, was. So I may have overstated it when I said more than 98% is junk. 1.5% uh, roughly is genes. There's another component that is regulatory DNA yes. and does other valuable things. Right. And then the remainder is so-called junk. That's a, right. A big, yes. big percentage. At least 80% of it yeah. is what I would think of as certified junk. I, I really don't think it does much of anything. It's just along for the ride. Well, you've been studying it in your lab after comparing these various species' genomes. And um, this is something I wanted to talk to you about because, of course, this is one of the biggest stories in genomic research uh, in the last couple decades is just how much junk there is, mm -hmm. why it's there, and why it sticks around. You know, if it's junk, why didn't evolution discard it? Usually... Stuff that's not valuable um, is a liability, and the organisms mm -hmm. that carry it are at a disadvantage, and survival of the fittest being what it is, it usually gets mm -hmm. lost, you know, gets dumped from the genome. So why did we carry around 80% of our genome in the form of um, apparently useless stuff? Well, not all species... Uh are willing to do this. Uh, so <laughs> if you look at bacteria or yeast, uh, they have almost no junk. Um, but to be successful in the, in the very competitive world of, of a yeast, uh, you have to be lean and mean. Uh, you really, it, you, you care about the amount of energy you expend in duplicating your genome. Uh, efficient metabolism is paramount. This is metabolism within the cell. And so you You're can't saying afford... yeast has it tougher than we do? Uh, they they have a lot of competition out there, and uh, they don't have uh, some of the things that that we can fall back on. Uh, we can use our intelligence and uh, our ability to uh, change our environment to to fit our uh, needs uh, to get by. So it turns out that larger animals uh, end up being able to afford copying the extra meaningless DNA. It, it doesn't reduce fitness that much to carry around uh, this uh, extra DNA. So uh, we're, we're pushing um, this shopping cart full, full, full of junk. Exactly. <laughs> down the street of life. <laughs> and it may, you know, it, it, uh, you know, you can't say that it's completely purposeless. Uh, the way I like to think about it is you could probably scramble the letters of that junk and not, not much would happen. Um, but it may be that it's important that the spacing is r roughly right uh, because we do find that genes that are separated by large spaces, so, so genes are made of what are called exons separated by introns. So uh, you can think about them as uh, the effective part of the gene that's making the protein and then some junk in between. And to, to make a protein, you remove that part uh, represented by the intron and piece yeah. together the exons, right. and you get a protein. Exactly, and the cell does this every time, and it seems foolish. Uh, why store these extra pieces of in the DNA, these introns, if you're just going to throw them away mm -hmm. before you make the protein? And so one would think, well, why don't we just make a 
genetic mutant where we get rid of them for the cell. Wouldn't, wouldn't, isn't the cell going to be happier? Turns out it's very unhappy when you do that. Mm. So somehow the cell needs to process these introns uh, to function correctly. Uh, and part of that is just the way, uh, way it ended up in evolution. So evolution is a fine-tuning of things like timing and uh, subtle signals that balance the activity in the cell. Uh, and so just the spacing introduced by junk DNA may help that balance. And the reason it's there is just because it happened to end up that way evolutionarily. Evolution, of course, in molecular evolution is a combination of, of drift and selection. Mm-hmm. And so we are constantly subject to a barrage of mutations that cause drift, just change. One of the drifts is addition of extra material is happening all the time. There's pressure to add material by this copying routine. Yeah, you've got a Xerox machine in there that uh, is running on its own and spitting out stuff all the time. Right. And that accumulates. Right. (laughs) And if it happens to be good in terms of timing Mm -hmm. to have a little extra bulk in the intron, then why not keep it around? It doesn't really cost that much so the the last word on junk DNA, I'm sure, has not been delivered. But at this point, the best hypothesis, uh, in your opinion, is that it doesn't really do anything, but we've gotten used to it, and um, therefore snipping it out would be a bad idea. <laughs> yes, that's right. The cell is addicted to it or used to it. But it also has formed the basis for many evolutionary innovations. So there are new genes and new regulatory elements that have been born out of the junk. And we have several examples in my lab now. So, Oh, for the, instance? The junk is actually a creative force in evolution. You know, these uh, spare parts that sit around, uh, that old, you know, bicycle rim that you threw in the attic. Exactly. You find a new use for it someday. <laughs> that is exactly it. And uh, Sidney Brenner has, the Nobel laureate, has a famous remark about why why he didn't call it trash. Uh, and it's because, uh, well, it isn't trash. Trash you throw away. Junk is something you store in the attic in case you might need it later on. And that's what the genome is doing. Now, um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, another one of um, the, the benefits and goals of the uh, Genome 10K project. We talked about how it's you know a huge treasure trove of sort of evolutionary information. What about... Um, conserving endangered species, um, environmental concerns about the way species are reacting to events like global warming, things like that. Does it have a role in that regard? Most definitely. And this is uh, another major motivation for the project. I would uh, call this motivation, in general, animal health. So I thought you were uh, going to say animal house, but... We have an enormous enterprise in the National Institute of Health uh, to try to keep us humans healthy. Um, But there's less uh, money and less effort put into keeping the different species on this planet healthy. Of course, number one is keeping their habitats intact, making sure we don't suffer a dramatic climate change. And we... uh, do not mean to detract from these efforts at all. We think the genetic information is an important addition to that. Just as humans depend on genetic information increasingly for better medical treatment, so will animals. And if you look at endangered species in particular, 
they tend to harbor genetic defects that are universal in their species at a much higher rate. If you look at genetic problems in uh, species with high populations like humans, yes, there are a few individuals that have severe genetic problems like cystic fibrosis or something like that, um, which is a devastating disease, and it does occur in a small fraction of the population. Uh, but it isn't universal. But if you consider uh, an endangered species, we have the susceptibility with such a small uh, and uh, small population and lack of diversity for having a genetic problem like that become universal within the population. Imagine... Because when you uh, have a population of 30 Siberian tigers or whatever, they're right. inbreeding, essentially. They're inbreeding, exactly. And inbreeding reveals these... Uh, glitches, which are normally not significant for most of the population. Most of the people have one good copy, so if they have one bad copy, it doesn't matter because the good copy makes up for it. And occasionally you'll have an unlucky child that inherits two defective copies, and then you'll have a problem. Well, this with inbreeding, this, this happens at enormous rate. So you can imagine... Uh, a, a population in which everybody had cystic fibrosis, it's just it would be just devastating. So the analogous thing is happening with our endangered species. And you have a collapse that leads inevitably to extinction when the, when the genetic diversity falls below a certain level. The only real help is, is to understand what are the genetic problems within the species and... Uh, undertake a, a, a program to correct them, usually by breeding, uh, careful breeding. Uh, and we think genetics will be uh, a main part of this, and the first step is to get a reference genome for these species. How about looking at genetic adaptations to changes like climate change? This is another area. We want to know how the species will respond to threats or stresses. These can be introduced by environmental stresses, new competitions, uh, infectious diseases are another source of threat. Uh, and so if you understand the uh, functioning of the immune system by sequencing the major histocompatibility complex genes, for example, uh, you can better predict uh, whether there is enough uh, genetic diversity or the appropriate genetic architecture to resist an infectious disease or not. Uh, certainly, um, environmental toxins are a main uh, source of concern, and we do understand certain genes that are responsible for the protection of the organism against environmental toxins. And uh, so that would be a key use for this genetic information. Well, it sounds to me like you have got your work cut out for you, and uh, you're going to be busy for a long time. We intend to be, and we're looking forward to it. I'll let you get back to it. Thanks a lot. David Hausler directs the Center for Biomolecular Science and Engineering at UC Santa Cruz and is a proud coordinator of the Genome 10K Project. And I have been the proud host of the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and I will be back next week.